Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome once again to our Bible study in the book of Romans. Tonight, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, and the title of our lesson is, But Now. All right, so tonight we're going to do a couple things uh, differently than we normally do, and I want to start with some uh, definitions. And the first definition I want to start with is the word righteousness. Now, righteousness means that you always and perfectly do what is right. Now, if you think about that for a second, that, of course, can only apply to God. That means you never slip up. You never make an error. You never, uh, you, you, you never make a mistake. You never sin. And, of course, that doesn't describe human beings at all. It can only be applied to God. The second term is justification. And justification, or to be justified, means to be declared righteous. That means that God looks at you and says, I see you as if you've never made a mistake. I see you as if you've never sinned, never slipped up. You, are, you, you have always done what is right, and you've done it perfectly. That's what it means to be justified. The third term I want to look at is redemption. Redemption means to grant, regain possession of something in exchange for payment. Um, think about, this is not the best analogy, but think about kind of like a pawn shop where you've, you've pawned something, you've, you've given, let's say, a, pocket, a watch, and uh, you come back at some time and you pay them and they, you get your property back. Well, that's, you redeemed that watch. That's what redemption uh, kind of means. It means regaining possession of something in exchange for payment. And then the last term is propitiation, which we definitely don't use in the English language. But that really means a payment. The, the technical definition is the, the turning away of judgment by an offering, the satisfying of a judgment. Um, or, or we can just look at it as, as payment. Now, we're going to use all these terms tonight because, as I've been saying for several weeks, we finally come to the point where Paul is going to make a, a major turn in his uh, letter. He's been showing us for weeks how we don't have the righteousness that we need. Like we just said, we don't always do things right. We don't always do things uh, perfectly. Therefore, we are sinners. We're under sin. Um, and we are under the wrath and judgment of God. But here in tonight's verses, he finally, for the very first time, gives us the gospel, the good news that we've been waiting for. Now, I cannot overstate, even if I tried, I could not overstate how important uh, tonight's passage is. Martin Luther said of, of, of uh, Romans three twenty-one to 26, that this passage is the chief point in the very central place of the entire letter, and indeed the whole Bible. Now just think about that. In his mind, or in his estimation, when you started in Genesis, it's all been working up to these six verses. It's all come down to, to this. And so he saw it as the chief point. Mar uh, Leon Morris said this, This passage is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written, not just in the Bible, he means that written in all of human history. See, what this passage does is it describes the, the gospel. Now, a couple of things I want to just kind of uh, lay out before us before we get to verse 21. A couple of things that Paul's been teaching us. First of all is this. All people are held personally accountable by God uh, for their sin. This was Paul's point last week in, in verse 19 where he said, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world uh, become guilty before uh, God. You see, no matter how virtuous we may appear to other people, who don't really know us, by the way, there will be a reckoning 
for what we have done, what we've said, what we've thought, and what we've uh, felt. Now, the problem that we have with this problem of guilt and the problem of this impending judgment of God cannot be made right by good works. You know, guilt is an absolutely a universal experience. I don't even have to try to explain it or describe it or define it because everybody that's listened to me knows exactly what it means to feel guilty. We've all done things we shouldn't have done. And by the way, we've all not done things we should have done. The Bible says if a man or a woman knows to do good and they don't do it, that that is sin. We've all been there, right? We've all done things we shouldn't have, not done things we should have, and these bad feelings that we get um, because of those things is what we call uh, guilt. Now, think for just a moment. How do people respond to guilt? Well, it's human nature. They try to assuage it. They try to tamp it down. We try to make ourselves feel better. And there's a lot of different ways that, that we do that. Uh, some people self-medicate with drugs and alcohol. Some people uh, throw themselves into frivolity, into their, into their hobbies and their passions. Some people uh, just inundate themselves with work, trying to stay busy and not have to deal with those issues. Other people spend years in, in counseling trying to deal with them. But there's one tactic that people use to deal with guilt that is by far the oldest and the most revered, and that is religion. Now, this tactic is probably the most deceptive because it's also the closest one to the truth. You see, it recognizes the problem that we are accountable to a holy God. The problem is it gets the solution all wrong. You see, religious people know that they're sinners. Religious people know that we owe God a debt for our disobedience. Religious people believe that one day God will hold us accountable. But here's where religious people go wrong. They think they can pay that debt through good works and by practicing religious rites or religious duties. In other words, they try to create their own righteousness. But Paul has gone to great pains in in these first three chapters to shoot that tactic down. In fact, his last statement last week was this. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, in other words, by good works, no flesh will be justified. Nobody will ever be declared righteous. God, uh, by the works of the law, nobody, God's not going to look at anybody and say, hey, you're perfectly good. You always do what's right. No, that doesn't do it. So Paul has shot that down. So here we are. This is our predicament. This is the, the hole, the hopelessness that we find ourselves in. We're guilty before God. We need a righteousness that we don't have, and we have no way to create it on our own, which brings us to tonight's passage, which brings us to uh, the good news. Now, I'm going to point out five things in this passage, and we're going to walk through it fairly slowly. Point number one is this. God himself has made a way for us to have the righteousness that we need. Let's begin to read in verse 21. The, The first two words are so awesome. They say, but now. With two words, we go from darkness to to life. We go from uh, uh, condemnation to justification. We go from works to faith, from hell to to heaven with just two words. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, We are all of us under condemnation. We are all under the wrath of God. We can never produce a righteousness that can stand up to God's searching glance and examination and investigation. 
we are altogether hopeless. Are you clear about that? If you are, you are ready to rejoice in these two words, but now. Now let's read the rest of that verse. But now, Paul says, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. In other words, how to get the righteousness of God apart from the hopelessness of trying to earn it through works. Paul says, now it's revealed. This is how you get it. And he says, by the way, it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament has been pointing to this. You see, God has not left us to deal with our guilt alone. He has not left us hopeless. This is the good news. That the God, the judge who we stand before as guilty, has himself undertaken to give us the righteousness that we need. Point number two. This righteousness is offered to all who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 22 and 23. The righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, Paul, Paul's been spending uh, all this time saying, I don't care if you're a Jew or a Gentile or black or white or man or woman or good or bad or religious or irreligious, you're all guilty. But see, here's the good news. He says the same thing. It's, all, it's available to all. It's on all who believe. All you have to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says there's a God-sent, God-given, God-supplied righteousness. And you don't get that righteousness through works. You don't earn it. You don't merit it. You don't deserve it. You get it one way, and that is through putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Point number three. This righteousness is a gift, and it cannot be earned. Look at verse 24. And you are justified. You are declared to be righteous. God looks at you and says, I see you as never having made a mistake, never making one error, one sin, one slip up. That's how I see you. I declare you justified by his grace as a gift. See, there's no works involved. In fact, grace and works are diametrically opposed to one another. Paul tells us in Romans 11, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. But here's the thing. Just because it's free doesn't mean that it didn't cost anything. And this leads us to point four. We are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 24 and 25. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a payment by his blood to be received by faith. You know, the Bible teaches this over and over and over. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus said in Matthew 26.28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 5, 17, in him we have redemption through his blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And of course, 1 Corinthians 6, 20, you were bought with a price. Now, this brings us to a great question. Why would God do this? Why would God do this for you and me? You know, if, if I went out today and, and to Winn-Dixie or Publix and I just did a, a, a man-on-the-street interview, if you will, and I asked people this question, why did God send his son to die on the cross? 
I would probably get a couple of answers. Maybe someone would say, well, God sent his son to die on the cross to save us from our sins, or God sent his son to die on the cross because he loves us. Now, by the way, both of those things are true, but that's not what Paul says. When Paul gives the main primary reason of why God did what he did, it turns out it's not about us at all. Look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Now, why would God feel it necessary to vindicate his righteousness? Well, it, Paul tells us. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Okay, now, what in the world does that mean? Let's go back for just a minute. Paul's been talking for a while now that, uh, and teaching us that God t it takes sin very seriously. God is holy and he hates sins. And because God is righteous, all sin must be punished. In fact, if he doesn't punish sin, then he can't be righteous. In fact, if he doesn't, he's not just. He's not a, he's not a righteous judge. He has to punish sin. But what about all the people who lived before Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? What about them? See, it's obvious that there were people in that era in that era, who were clearly justified in God's eyes, men like Abraham. In fact, Genesis 15, 6 tells us that Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. He just believed God and God says, I see you as having never made a mistake. Right? So, but the fact is, Adam, I mean, uh, uh, Abraham was a sinner. He made mistakes. He wasn't perfect. Go read Genesis and you'll find that out. You see, what happened is God's justice and righteousness was being called into question because in his patience, he had passed over the sins of these Old Testament saints, men like David and Moses and Abraham and Jacob and, and others. And because of this, he, he needed to vindicate himself or wanted to vindicate himself and clear his name. So how were those men and women saved in the Old Testament where they were saved just like us? See, they, they might have been forgiven before died on the, Jesus died on the cross, but they were forgiven because they looked forward to that. They knew that one day that God would bring a perfect sacrifice. They knew that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And so they put their faith in God that one day God would take care of it. You see, I've said this often. Old Testament people were saved by looking forward to what Christ would do. You and I are saved by looking back to what Christ has already done. You see, it turns out this is the foundational reason for the cross, that God's righteousness is at stake. His name, his reputation, his honor must be vindicated. What a truth it is that we often miss. Ask 100 people, why did Jesus die on the cross? And, and probably 99 will say some reason about us. But before the cross is about us, it's always about God first and foremost. You see, this is the gospel. The fact that God can first be just. He, he can punish sin while at the same time be the justifier of those that he loves that put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is what verse 26 tells us. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. He can judge sin, but at the same time he can be the justifier of the one who has his faith in Jesus. We said this several weeks ago when we studied Romans 1, 16 and 17. God loves us, yes, but his justice requires that he deal with man's sin. The question is, how does he do both? 
How does he deal with sin in a just way and at the same time justify the sinner? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us how he did it. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a trait. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. You see, on Calvary, God is making a way so that you and I might be forgiven. But he had to do it in a way that would leave his character unviolated. That's why when you see the cross, it's, it's, the, it's the best of both worlds. It's God's love, but it's also God's justice. Until you understand that, you'll never understand the cross. You'll never see the glory of the cross, the, the tremendous, staggering truth of the cross and how great it was that what God did for us. Point number five, and we'll close with this. This gift of justification only comes to those who trust in Jesus. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about faith over the next few weeks as we move forward in, in Romans. But I want to ask a question tonight. What part does our faith play in salvation? Paul explains this very well in Ephesians 2.8. He says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So you read that verse and it's by grace. It's a gift of God. It's not of work. So, so what part does our faith play? Well, let me give you a little illustration. Let's say that you've been having a problem slipping in the shower and uh, you're talking to a friend and you're telling uh, this friend about it and they say, well, why don't you buy one of those handles that you put in your shower? And you think, wow, that's a good idea. And so you go to Walmart or whatever, and you buy one of these, uh, these silver handles that go in the shower. Now let me ask you this. How ludicrous would it be the next time you take a shower to grab that handle in your hand and step in the shower? Do you think that handle is going to help you? You see, the handle is only useful if it's attached to something solid. See, that's exactly how faith is. Faith all by itself is not therapeutic. It's, it's not saving but some people actually assign uh, salvation to the faith. In fact, have you ever heard things like this? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as your faith is sincere. Let me tell you, let me tell you, it matters. Of course it matters. Faith has to have an object. And it's the character of that object that makes your faith viable or non-viable. Saving faith must have as its object Jesus Christ. Faith in Allah, not going to get you anywhere. Faith in Buddha, not going to get you anywhere. Faith in love or anything like that is not going to get you anywhere. Faith is only saving faith when its object is Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said this, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. God himself has not left us in our guilt and our hopelessness. He has made a way through His Son, Jesus Christ, for us to get the righteousness that we need. But Hebrews 2.3 says this, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let's pray. Father, as always, Lord, thank You for Romans. Thank You for all of Your Word, but especially this book tonight, I want to say thank You. What a, what a wonderful, wonderful message in the way that You used the Apostle Paul to lay it out. God, help us as Christians understand that our faith has to be in you. That's what saves us. That's what transfers to us 
the righteousness that we need is when we put our faith in the sacrifice that you made on the cross. That's it. That's what makes our faith saving. That's what makes our faith viable. And God, we got the message that the world needs. Give us the boldness and the courage to share it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.